What a blessing. If you would, take your Bibles and open them up to Deuteronomy. Glory be to God, right? Deuteronomy chapter 21, we have been on a brief hiatus, reprieve of sorts from this book, from marching through this wonderful portion of inspired scripture. And we've been on break for about four weeks now. Uh, Now we're back in Deuteronomy chapter one, rather, sorry, hmm. You're thinking, here we go again, Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 21. I think I heard some people gasp and think, I can't do this again. Deuteronomy 21. And when you arrive there, because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand to hear from the God who still speaks in his word. And we are going to read together verses 1 through 23, the entire chapter. Moses writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, beginning in verse 1. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled." And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley and they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel whom you have redeemed and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive And you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife, but If you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. You shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, a terribly easy text, isn't it? If a man has two wives, The one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength, the right 
of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. They shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Over the 18 and a half wonderful years of marriage I have enjoyed to my beloved wife, Tana, I have realized that our minds operate a bit differently. And you think to yourself, oh, you are on holy ground, pastor. Tread carefully. This difference often surfaces in conversations with one another. For example, I prefer to focus on one item for a period of time. Additionally, if we are going to move to another topic in the middle of a conversation, I need to be able to start related how they are connected. Tana, on the other hand, spends short spurts of time on what appear to me and my finite perspective, what appear to me to be an assortment of topics. For example, we may be in the middle of a conversation about the future of our children when... Tana seamlessly moves to addressing the rise in grocery prices or the need to trim the hedges this weekend. For years, I experienced intellectual whiplash <laughs> as we had conversations. But I have learned, I have learned over the years that Tana actually detects a connection between all of these issues. They're all related. All of them. Without exception. I was talking with my beloved bride yesterday <clears throat> about this, by the way. She knows. You're thinking, that's good. In fact, by the way, you know I have notes that I use and sometimes don't use as I preach, and next to, I wish you could see this, next to this illustration, it reads, you think you're funny, but you're not. <laughs> Smiley face. Just a picture into our marriage So we were having a conversation as I was mentioning. I was talking with my, my bride yesterday morning over a cup of coffee. We, we love early in the morning getting up and having a cup of coffee together and, and uh, beginning our day together. And I shared with her a bit about this illustration. Actually, I requested permission. I should say it that way. I requested permission. She granted permission. And uh, I told her that Deuteronomy 21 reminded me of her. Is that not, we may need marriage counseling after this. <clears throat> she then retorted, so you're saying I am more biblical than you are. Amen, amen, 
and amen. Well, all of that to say, upon a cursory reading of this chapter, Deuteronomy 21, you may feel that it's a bit unconnected. I certainly did. As I was preparing to preach this chapter, in fact, I knew about this chapter some time ago when I selected Deuteronomy. Anyone who plans to preach Deuteronomy needs to know if you preach Deuteronomy, you have to preach Deuteronomy 21. It wouldn't be kosher to preach Deuteronomy 20 and then to preach Deuteronomy 22. And so you've got to address Deuteronomy 21. This is known to be a challenging chapter in the word of God. And so as I was preparing even for months and this past week, looking at this chapter in great detail, the first reading of the chapter, it occurred to me again, you know, it feels like this is just an assortment of bizarre and unrelated topics. However, I would suggest to you that there is tremendous consistency throughout the chapter. There is connectivity between one topic and the next topic. And so as we look together at this portion of scripture, we're not gonna get into all of the details. After all, it is my aim to cover the entire chapter in our time together. As we do this together, I would suggest to you that this chapter, if you're taking notes, you may jot this down, this chapter highlights how to escape sinful defilement. How to escape sinful defilement in the presence of God. And we should say it this way, and the resulting divine curse. After all, our sin merits God's curse. The God who is thrice holy, holy, holy curses and punishes sin. Curses and punishes sinners. And so this is a chapter that actually enters into a context of our sinful defilement and asks the question, how is it that we can escape it? Another way to ask the question is to ask, how, how is it that we can actually have a permanent relationship with this holy God? It ought to feel uncomfortable as we read the chapter. It really should. If you squirmed a bit, you probably got a, an accurate sense of what's happening throughout the fabric of this text. Well, we're going to unpack the text together, if you're taking notes, in three stages. Three stages. First of all, and we've done this a bit, but we're going to highlight it a bit more. First of all, we will identify a problem. We will identify a problem. And this problem surfaces right out of the text. But it really is woven throughout the fabric of the chapter. We'll point to a few verses, perhaps, that highlight this problem. Secondly, we will find instructions. Instructions God grants to Israel in the midst of the problem. So first, the problem. Then what God does is he enters into this problem and provides various instructions. Finally, after seeing both a problem and instructions, we will conclude our time looking together at the solution God provides for this problem. There is a permanent solution to the problem that surfaces in the text. And really this serves as the zenith of Deuteronomy 21. It serves as the climax of all of the Old Testament. It is indeed the testimony of all of scripture. This is why, by the way, this is why we preach God's word expositionally. This is why we march through books of the Bible chapter by chapter because all of them bear testimony to the solution and we're going to get to that solution here in just a bit. So first a problem, then instructions in the midst of this problem. And then finally, a solution, a permanent solution to this problem. Now keep in mind as we move through the text, I want you to remember this. Israel oftentimes throughout the book of Deuteronomy serves as a microcosm for all of humanity. What do I mean by that? It means that Israel's story is a small picture of the story for all of humanity. 
In fact, and we're not going to turn to various passages to show this, but in fact, Deuteronomy, and oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, we find imagery that reminds us of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, them being kicked out of God's land and so forth. And this imagery gets carried over into the life of and the story of the Israelites. Why? Because they're serving as a kind of additional story and smaller form about all of humanity. So what we're going to say about Israel most often will apply to all of humanity this morning. And we'll point out some of those things together, okay? Well, let's begin by identifying the problem. First, notice verse one. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who kills him. Now, immediately, this is what you need to note, immediately we are faced with the problem of death. Deuteronomy 21 was not written about the ideal. It was written in the context of brokenness, of defilement, even of murder. Specifically in this context, if we're not told whether this was what we would categorize as a murder or what we would categorize as manslaughter or unintentionally taking the life of another. Nevertheless, what we do know is that you've got someone who is dead and someone else took their life, but nobody really knows who that someone else is. And the language Moses uses for the land here, that is the land of Canaan. Remember, he's talking about Israel going into the land of Canaan. Here's how you're going to live in the land of Canaan. Well, the language used to describe the land of Canaan in this text actually is the less common word that is oftentimes translated ground or soil. Adamah, ha'adamah, as opposed to ha'aretz. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter four, verse 10, where God says to Cain, who has just murdered his brother, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me, here it is, from the ground. Same word. So the imagery is vivid. This is not an ideal situation. The ground itself is stained with blood. Now glance at verse nine. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst. And so they go through this process and this is the purpose for the process. Verse nine says, you are to purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And what this chapter does at various points and in various ways is it assumes scenarios in which Israel's relationship with the Lord in the land is jeopardized. Why is it jeopardized? And here's the problem. And we pointed out already, we'll point it out again. It's jeopardized on account of sin. Israel's relationship will consistently be jeopardized with the Lord on account of their own sinful defilement. Now don't miss that. This is not a description of the new heavens and the new earth. When everything is made new, and sin is abolished. No, this is a very real description of life in the midst of brokenness and defilement. That's the problem that plagues Deuteronomy 21. And really, to be frank, it plagues all of God's law. Verse 21b, look down at that verse briefly, and then we'll stop there and move on to instructions. Verse 21b we find this refrain that we found elsewhere in Deuteronomy. So the second part of verse 21, so you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. What does this assume? It assumes the presence of evil. It assumes the presence of sin. It assumes the presence of defilement. So the problem addressed in Deuteronomy 21 is this. Even in the land of Canaan, Israel will be defiled by sin. That's the problem. 
Even when they arrive in God's promised land, as they're standing on the plains of Moab and God is moving them through Moses' leadership and will eventually bring them through Joshua's leadership into God's promised land. Even at that point, when they enter God's promised land and the fulfillment of God's promises, God assures them here, they will be defiled by sin. That's the problem in the text. Now, let's look together at some instructions. You know, I almost called this provisions. Temporary provisions God makes. Because these aren't permanent. But they take the form of four, maybe five, instructions. And the fourth and the fifth instruction really go together. First, I'll identify the four overall instructions, and we'll walk through them briefly. At least that's my goal. First of all, in light of Israel's defilement and sin, in light of the reality that even in the land Israel will be defiled by sin, God offers instructions. He says, first of all, Israel is to make atonement for the taking of human life. That's the first instruction. Verses one through nine, Israel, God's people are to make atonement when a life is taken, whether through murder or through manslaughter and no one knows who did it. And so they are still to make atonement on account of the presence of sin. And so God instructs the elders of the nearest city and you can look through some of this. We read it a moment ago. God instructs the elders of the nearest city to where the body was actually found in a field and those elders are to take a heifer down to a valley with running water in verse nine, I'm rather verse four. And when they take this heifer that's never been yoked, never been worked, They're to take this heifer down to the valley with running water and they're to break the neck of this animal. This is apparently a kind of substitution. Substitutionary atonement, we might suggest, in which the punishment that should be inflicted upon the murderer is inflicted upon the heifer. Boy, I would love to chase a rabbit here. We're not going to, but I'm going to mention this. Substitution is woven throughout the fabric of God's law. It baffles me today when you'll pick up, every so often you'll pick up a scholar who contends that substitution is found nowhere in Scripture. I think, my word, what are they reading Time and time again, the one who is guilty is not punished. Rather, that punishment is transferred. In the case of God's law, most of the time to an animal. Very apparently, substitution. And through that substitution, atonement. We'll come back to that, as you might imagine, in a few moments. Then all the elders, after they've broken the neck of the heifer, all the elders of the city nearest to where the man was slain were to wash their hands. And they're washing their hands over the heifer, over this atoning substitution, as it were. Some contest this is not officially a sacrifice. Blood is not spilled, as it were. But the heifer indeed dies in place of this person. And they wash their hands as a kind of vow that their hands are clean. That is to say, they... They didn't take the life of this person and they don't know who did. And so this is a kind of promise, a kind of vow as even their prayer demonstrates. And while this ceremony may appear distant and bizarre to us, and it does, doesn't it? As 21st century Christians, this just feels bizarre. I want you to notice a couple of ways. Scripture does instruct us concerning the nature of sin. So we learn a bit more about the nature of sin by paying close attention to how God instructs his people to deal with the presence of sin. First of all, notice that sin is not portrayed as an isolated or private offense. What you won't find concerning The doctrine of sin in scripture is this narrative that just simply says, you do you, I'll do me. As if to imply, 
What you choose to do with your life is your business. What I choose to do with my life is my business. That is naive at best and overtly erroneous when compared to what scripture teaches concerning the nature of sin. Sin is a corporate infection. Sin is a corporate infection and we learn this right out of the gate in Genesis chapter three, what ends up happening? Well, our federal head, Adam, ends up sinning. He and Eve sin in the garden and then who as a result is punished on account of that sin? You could put your hand up at this point, couldn't you? This is essential to Christianity. Understanding that sin is not some kind of privatized affair. It's, it's, it's not merely personal. It's not merely individual. In fact, when we sin, it impacts other people. And we know this, don't we? You know that when someone chooses, let's say, God forbid, to get in a car after they've been intoxicated, you know that that sin is likely to impact forever other people. That's why I say this is naive. As 21st century Westerners, it's naive for us to think that our sins are private. So we learn that in the text. Secondly, we also learn concerning sin, that sin is never to be ignored. Never. Notice what God doesn't do. He doesn't say, you know what? You don't know what happened. Forget about it. Ignore it. No, there's this this ceremony that must take place and a heifer has to die and you've got to wash your hands and bear testimony in my presence. God says, how much more, if this is the case with God's law, how much more ought this be the case with Christians who have come to know the Lord? That is to say, how much more ought Christians refuse to ignore our own sins when we commit them? What does this mean for me? This means that, that when I sin against you, it's, it's inadequate to just ignore that. But rather, I should seize it and with confidence in the work of Jesus Christ, confess it and ask for forgiveness. I mean, if the law of God addresses sin head on, how much more the gospel of Jesus Christ even this morning, time of confession. Maybe my last week of being your pastor, if I tell you this. I suspect not, though. This morning, I became very frustrated with one of my children. And as Lord's Day mornings tend to be, you know, the, the song, Easy Like Sunday Morning, I have no idea what he was thinking. But I became frustrated, and I became frustrated, really, truth be told, on account of my own idolatry. Well, sure, I could justify, right? There was a context, and, and there were things done that shouldn't have been done, and, and, and I'm justified as a result. But the reality is, it was my idolatry that produced anger, that produced an elevated voice that harmed one of my kids when I spoke to my child. So what do I do? Confess it. Go to my child and say, dad is in need of the same savior you're in need of today. When we prayed together, I asked my child to forgive me and this child, without hesitation, said, I forgive you, dad. But what gives us confidence to deal head on with our sin? If the law commends it, how much more the gospel by which we've been freed from sin. Christians ought never to ignore their sin. Sin is never something to be ignored, especially for those who know the Savior who purchased them from sin slavery. Second provision or instruction God gives, we cannot spend that much time on all of them. 
The second bit of instructions God gives in the midst of this problem of ongoing defilement is this. Israel was to protect female captives. Now this may sound odd to you. It doesn't seem like much protection as we're reading this. But I'm going to unpack it just a bit. Israel was to protect female captives of war. Look with me at verses 10 through 13. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive. This is the scenario. Is this ideal? No. But this is the world in which Israel is living. A world plagued by defilement. And you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails. She shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband. Now don't miss that. And she shall be your wife. When I decided to preach to Deuteronomy, I will say, I think Pastor Tim, if I'm not mistaken, we were talking. We had just read Deuteronomy as staff a chapter or so a day. And, uh, and Angie, I think this was the chapter you came out of staff meeting and said, wow, I have no idea what's going on. In Deuteronomy 21, but Pastor Tim said to me, uh, you know, something along the lines of, well, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. Well, this seems foreign to us. God actually is here providing protection for female captives of war. That's hard for us to imagine, I know. We live in a different cultural moment, a very different moment than this world. But some of the most vulnerable people in the ancient world would have been such women. While we may not be able to make sense of everything in the text, on account of our own cultural assumptions, I think a few items should be noticed. First of all, the woman is presumably someone who is becoming an Israelite in practice. What is she doing? She shaves her head, she pares her nails, and she changes her clothes. This is, as it were, a kind of leaving behind her past, her heritage, her religion, and embracing Israelite religion, worship of the one true and living God. Old things are gone, new things are coming, as it were. That's what's happening. And these ritualistic acts, as it were, these rites, R-I-T-E-S, are ways of manifesting that change. Furthermore, she is given time to grieve over the loss of her family and her heritage. This is not common. It's not common. God does not say to the Israelites, go and have your way with whatever women you choose. That would have been common. And if I can be frank, in times of war today, it's still common. No, she's given time to grieve over the loss of her family and her heritage. We're not told, actually, if her mother and father are physically dead. We don't know that. It's possible they're not. It's possible they are. But she's losing, as it were, that heritage. And I want you to notice also that this woman was to be given the status of wife. Do you see that? Thereby protecting her from becoming merely an instrument in the hands of another defiled sinner. She was provided for. In the ancient world, this woman would have been one of the most vulnerable people in existence. And to be unmarried all the more, by the way, at this time. And we live in a world now where, and praise the Lord, this is the case. We live in a world now where women and men, for that matter, choose not to be married for various reasons. And a woman can move across the country or around the world and have her own job and so on and so forth, her own ministry and all of these things. And, and praise the Lord for those things. But this was not that world. This was a world that was especially dangerous for such a woman. And the safest place to be was in marriage. Finally, if the man decides not to keep her as his wife, now there's a lot here, 
And there are some assumptions made and God doesn't unpack all of the details, but he may not treat her like a chattel slave. She's not property. Do you notice that? Again, this is, this would have been foreign to the ancient context. She is not owned by you, God says. You don't own her. You may not sell her. In fact, one of the verbs that's used here may be translated something along the lines of you may not mistreat her. In fact, she's permitted to go wherever she desires. Did you see that? Again, foreign to the ancient context. Now, what is God doing? God is entering into the unideal in his kindness and he's actually protecting the vulnerable. The problem of Israel's defilement is woven throughout the chapter. The problem of humanity's defilement is woven throughout the chapter. What does God do? He provides these temporary provisions in the form of instructions that help protect and provide for those who may be mistreated. Third, third instruction God gives, Israel was to protect unloved family members. And I'm really gonna pick up the pace now, okay? Israel was to protect unloved family members. God is not prescribing polygamy. He's describing polygamy. And there's a difference. In fact, the word of God begins with the ideal one man, one woman for life with Adam and Eve. But here, again, the unideal is materializing and Israel is defiled and the cultures are defiled. And so the scenario is painted in which a man loves one of his wives and doesn't love the other wife. And what God does is he says, look, you can't show partiality and take what rightfully belongs to the firstborn and give it to another simply because you prefer that wife. Again, a a foreign context to us. But I hope you see how God is entering into, again, through instructions and temporary provisions, the unideal and the defilement of Israel's sin, even in the land, and he's protecting the vulnerable. And then fourth, fourth, Israel was to judge sinful rebellion. Look at verse 18, where the scenario is described If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, they will not listen to them. Now stop there. This son is not a young child. This son is older, perhaps even a a young adult. Notice that in verse 20, part B, the parents testify that the son is a glutton and a drunkard. This is a way of describing someone who lives characteristically in their own selfish ambitions and indulgences. So again, we're not talking about here a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old. This is someone who is likely a young man at this point. And this is a young man who has defied time and time and time again his parents' authority, their instructions, and their discipline. He simply will not listen to his parents. And if he won't listen to his parents, here's the assumption. He won't listen to any other authorities either. By the way, parents, I think that's still a safe assumption. I do. one of the best things we can attempt by God's grace to give our children is an appreciation for authority. I don't know what's more countercultural than that. An understanding of authority that indeed recognizes that all authorities, this side of resurrection, are flawed, yes, but all authorities are established by the authority who is benevolent and merciful and trustworthy. And they begin to learn that in relationship to parents. 
by God's grace. In this case, a scenario is described where the child just is defiant. And remember that sin is a corporate infection. If Deuteronomy 21 wants to teach us anything, it is that the reality of sin invades every facet of human existence. So these parents are to bring their son to the elders of the city who would preside over the case and presumably would hear the case and make a decision. And if the young man was apparently and persistently rebellious, then we read, all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear in fear. A lot here, isn't there? This is a heavy text. So far, here's what we've seen. We're gonna come full circle. So far, we've seen a problem. We would call it the problem, finally. Even in the land of Canaan, Israel will be defiled by sin. Why? Because they're humans after the fall and before the final resurrection. Even in the land of Canaan, Israel will be defiled by sin. God responded to Israel's defilement by giving various instructions to guide them amid their ongoing problem. But don't you see, don't you see something that is absolutely apparent? These instructions, although they are benevolent provisions from a kind God, cannot finally solve the problem. You see that? These are just temporary instructions that God is giving. In fact, we could even turn over, we're not going to turn there, but the Apostle Paul describes God's law in this way in 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, so on and so forth. Why did God give the law? Why the need for the law? Paul says because of the presence of sin. I told one of my children the other day, I had a conversation and I said, you know, sweetheart, I don't want to make this rule. I won't give you the details of it, but there's this rule we were talking about. I don't want to make this rule. I, I would like for you to exercise wisdom in God's goodness and kindness but understand that, that if you're not exercising wisdom, then I feel compelled to make the rule. What am I saying? I'm saying what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1. The rule would be unnecessary, you see, in the presence of faithfulness in that area. And that's what Paul says concerning the law. But the problem is the law doesn't remedy our sin. In the end, it's able to highlight our sin. It's able to show us the seriousness of our sin. It's able in some ways to mitigate the effects of sin in this fallen world, but it's not able to remedy. Now look at verses 22 and 23 and we'll finish here. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree and you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Verse 18 with the rebellious son, verse 18 described a man, a father, who presents his son for judgment. And this father's child was rebellious and to spare the nation of the disaster that comes from such rebellion, the child was to be put to death. There's a father with a rebellious son whose son must die to spare the nation. Death demonstrated God's curse against 
sin? After all, this is what God told Adam and Eve, and the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely what? You'll die. So the rebellious son who received God's judgment was at times displayed. I mean, this comes right after the description of the rebellious son. We should read it in tandem with the rebellious son who must die, who is the man who is cursed hanging on a tree. In the text, it's the son. And this display of rebellion is a reminder to Israel that this is where sin leads. It leads to death and God's curse. But all of this points us to another father, doesn't it? And to another son. That's where Deuteronomy 21 takes us, to a solution. Not one that's temporary, not one that's just kind of rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic, right? The thing's going down, doesn't matter what you do with this stuff. No, we need someone who keeps the thing afloat, who restores it. We learn about another father who, rather than having a rebellious son, has a blameless son. A son who rather is is perfect. No sin, no deceit, no rebellion. This son, rather than rebelling against his father's instructions, only ever did what his father desired. He made statements like this in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. He made statements even at an early age, I must be about my father's business. Even when obeying the father meant dying through crucifixion on a Roman cross, he prayed these words, not my will, but yours be done, father. Friends, church family, Deuteronomy describes a father whose rebellious son becomes a curse on account of his own sin, And this death for a moment spares the people of Israel, but this death does not finally remedy the fundamental problem that all of the Israelites are afflicted with. It cannot remedy the problem of sin happening over and over and over again. What we need is a father who sins the perfect son, who dies the sufficient death, in place of sinners and through his death and through his bodily resurrection actually gives righteousness and obedience to those who are stained by sin. And that is precisely what we have in Jesus Christ. Christ became a curse for us so that we might receive the blessing of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24, this is so very rich. He says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Christ himself bore our sins, not his own, bore our sins in his body, on the tree. Now, then Peter goes somewhere with this, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's the solution to our defilement. That's the solution to our sin. Friends, I know it's late. If you've not come to know Jesus Christ. If you've not come to know this infinitely good and gracious Father who sent his Son, who is truly God and became truly human for you, lived in perfect obedience to the Father, died in place of his people and for their sins, was buried and was raised in glorious power from the dead on the third day. If you've not come to treasure this Son who died as a substitute, For sinners, I plead with you this morning, don't leave here without embracing Christ. 
And if you have questions about any of this, would like to talk about this, would like someone with whom you can pray about any of these things, would you stay after the service and as you walk out, take a left outside of this room and on the right-hand side out there is a room called Crossroads. You'll see that title above it and there will be a pastor in there to talk with you and pray with you. I want to end with a quote from Horatius Bonar, who was a 19th century Scottish hymn writer. And I wish I could produce a Scottish accent. I cannot. But he once penned a hymn describing this substitution, this obedient son who actually bears the curse for disobedient sinners and becomes our only source of hope. And here's what he wrote. Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, another's tears another's griefs, on them I rest, on them alone. And then he concludes, Jesus, O Son of God, I build on what thy cross has done for me. There, both my death and life I read, my guilt, my pardon, there I see. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the truths we attempt to articulate defy words. We are the rebellious son, deserving death in display on the tree. Meriting your curse and condemnation. But you have richly provided for us in the Son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, O Father, we have been healed. We pray this with eternal gratitude on account of Christ and all God's people said.